Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my bed crimers. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Do me a favor, if after watching the video you find you enjoyed it or you learned something, smash that like button and please consider subscribing. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a membership. I keep the price really low, $1.99 a month. Hey, that's much less than even one drink from Starbucks. Now, without further ado, let's dig in. Well, hello there. How you doing? I hope everything is fantastic with you. I've been a little busy with doctor's appointments with my dad. Now I'm finally back so I can do some recording. I'm working on a video about the Adam Montgomery trial and the story of poor little Harmony Montgomery. It's such a sad case. I should have that out soon. I know some people are tiring of the Adelson case. I find the case so fascinating. Still, there's so much to talk about. But enough of my chatter, let's get on with it. Today, I want to share a timeline with you of key dates in the case of Charlie Adelson slash Dan Markell. I may soon need to call it the Adelson slash Dan Markell case once Donna Adelson gets convicted for her alleged role in the murderous plot. We shall see. Now, I'm not going to just list every single date in the case. Instead, I want to share the dates that I feel paint pictures of things like the point at which Wendy Adelson became disenchanted with Dan Markell, as well as when she began doing things behind Dan's back to prepare for what he would later call his Pearl Harbor, the day when Wendy up and left the marital home with their two baby boys and more than half of the furniture. I also want to look at when Charlie, likely with Donna's help, allegedly, seriously began plotting Dan Markell's demise. I think looking at the years and months will help us see how emotions were shifting and momentum was building for a tragic and brutal ending to the Wendy and Danny love story. I'm going to start at the beginning, the crossroad where Wendy Adelson and Dan Markell sealed the love deal and got married. It was on February 26th of 2006. Post the festivities, the couple enjoyed a honeymoon in the Bahamas. They then returned to Tallahassee, Florida. Dan soon received a lateral job offer to teach at Washington University in St. Louis. When Dan and Wendy visited Wash U, as it's called, the law faculty treated the couple like celebrities. They rolled out the red carpet. Wash U was seriously interested in Danny Markell and also was willing to come up with a position for his wife, Wendy. When Dan and Wendy returned to Tallahassee after visiting St. Louis, Dan received an email from Wash U's dean asking for a list of his requirements. Basically, what would Dan need to be lured away from Florida State University? But Dan made a mistake. His list of requests went way too far, and the dean curtly replied that the university would not be able to make him and Wendy happy. The university decided not to pursue Danny or Wendy. 
But shortly after that major disappointment, an even more enticing offer rolled in. The University of Miami offered Danny a visiting position for the fall 2006 semester. This would be what's called a look-see opportunity to allow the law department a chance to check Danny's teaching out, see his intellect in real time. The university also offered Wendy a position for that semester. She would be working at the Center for Ethics and Public Service, handling cases, and supervising students representing abused and neglected children in immigrant visa proceedings. But after the semester, the University of Miami decided not to offer Dan and Wendy permanent positions. Danny had managed to tick off some faculty members, and Wendy failed to shine in her position. It makes you wonder if Danny and Wendy had been successful in those positions at the University of Miami and would have been given permanent offers. Would this story have ended differently? Tallahassee plays an undeniable role in this case because of Wendy's intense dislike of it. Ultimately, Danny and Wendy ended up back in Tallahassee. At this point, the couple realized Tallahassee wasn't going to be simply a stepping stone to a bigger city and better university. Thus, the couple realized they would be putting down roots in a place that Wendy loathed. This is when they bought their house in Benton Hills. So Danny goes back to teaching full-time in the law school there. Eventually, he gets a salary bump to $180,000 a year. Wendy receives a position as a public interest attorney an adjunct professor for FSU as well. However, her salary, which was funded by a grant from the Florida State Bar Foundation, was just $35,000, nothing to get too excited about. And her office was not in the main building where Dan's was. Instead, it was in a converted house, and her office was pretty much the size of a shoebox. Wendy's desk sat a few inches away from a water heater. She made the best of this situation, and she poured herself into the work. So three years go by, and then on July 29th of 2009, the still-happy couple welcomes their first child, Benjamin Amakai Markel. Roughly a year later, on October 13th of 2010, a second son, Lincoln, is born. Danny takes an academic year off from work, but instead of sticking close to home, he decides to travel to other universities as a visiting professor, and he continues writing papers. This means Wendy is left at home in Tallahassee, to tend to Benjamin and Lincoln all by herself. It's at this point that resentment starts to set in. She's carrying the weight of the house cleaning, the cooking, the raising of the kids, while Danny's career and reputation are soaring. Through all of this, Wendy finds time to pen a novel called This Is Our Story. It takes her two years to write, and it's published in February of 2011. Many believe the novel is autobiographical, although the names have been changed. Wendy is growing increasingly sick of Tallahassee and of Dan Markell. Danny opts not to read Wendy's novel, but he does promote it on his Facebook and Law Professor's blog. 
Wendy is deeply wounded by this, but note that her brother, Charlie, only reads a few chapters of the novel himself. Wendy forgives Charlie, but not Danny. Early in 2011, Wendy first expresses that she wants a divorce, no matter that Lincoln is still an infant. So about five years into their marriage, the union begins splintering apart. Wendy is unhappy and feels that Danny doesn't view her as his equal. She's nearly as ambitious as he is, but she's the one who drives the car on road trips so that Danny can work in the passenger seat and not waste his precious time. He also insists that Wendy remain silent all along the journey, at least that's what she tells Jeffrey Lacoste later. Danny and Wendy decide to go to marriage counseling, but they don't stick with it. When funding is eliminated for Wendy's position at FSU, Danny asks the dean to create a position for Wendy on the university's clinical faculty. And the dean makes this happen. Wendy receives a position paying $85,000, and she gets a real office within the law school. Win-win. It is now 2012. In July of 2012, Wendy secretly takes a required parenting class for parents seeking divorce. Danny has no clue this is going on. A month later, on August 23rd of 2012, Wendy, unbeknownst to Danny, secures a divorce attorney. On this day, the divorce attorney completes one of the necessary forms to move ahead with the divorce. The next month, on September 5th, Wendy secretly signs a divorce petition. Danny Markell is still unaware of all of this. He knows that he and Wendy have had problems, but he doesn't know that she's about to escape from their life together. On September 7th, Danny flies to New York City to attend and run a criminal law theory colloquium. As soon as Danny's out of Tallahassee, Wendy's parents, Donna and Harvey Adelson, swoop in along with some of Wendy's friends. They're there to help Wendy clear out all of her belongings and furniture from the home she shares with Danny. They take nearly every piece of furniture and all of the boys' clothing that currently fit them. With the help of her well-oiled team, Wendy moves to a townhome on Aqua Ridge Way in Tallahassee. And again, Danny has no idea that all of this is going on. Three days later, on September 10th, Danny gets a call while he's in the middle of the conference. He sees Wendy's name pop up on the screen. Now, this is a call that he must take because for the past three days since he's been in New York, Wendy hasn't answered any of his calls or text messages. When Dan answers the phone, Wendy gets right to the point. She tells him, I'm leaving you and I'm taking the kids with me. Danny replies, please don't do that. Wendy hangs up and follows through with her plans. The boys are just two and three years old at this point. Danny takes the first plane back to Tallahassee, and when he walks into their shared home in Benton Hills late that evening, he finds the place plundered of most of its furnishings. He runs upstairs and finds his son's room empty, aside from a discarded mattress on the floor, even the letters that were affixed to the wall to help the boys learn their ABCs have been torn off. Worst of all, Wendy and the boys are gone. Wendy doesn't tell Danny where they're staying. This is Danny's Pearl Harbor. 
he eventually finds out where his boys are living when he threatens to accuse Wendy of kidnapping. A month later, on October 9th, Dan celebrates his 40th birthday. He invites friends to his home. He's still reeling from Wendy's actions, but he's resilient. In late November, Wendy secures a job with a personal injury firm called Grossman Roth in South Beach. One of the senior partners of the firm is a longtime friend of her parents, Donna and Harvey. The friend is more than happy to help with employment for Wendy in Miami. This is all part of her grand scheme to relocate permanently there with her boys. She will need to show the court that she's got a good job all lined up in South Florida, and thanks to Grossman Roth, the problem has been solved. It's now 2013. In January, Wendy files her petition to relocate to South Florida with Bennett and Lincoln. It's official. The papers are filed, and Danny sees that Wendy is scheming to pretty much remove him from his son's lives because South Florida is at least seven hours away by car from where he teaches. The vicious battle has begun. Wendy's mother, Donna, is pushing hard for this relocation. Danny spends the next five weeks writing a 23-page response to Wendy's relocation petition. In it, Danny criticizes Wendy. When Wendy shares the response with her parents, Donna, in particular, is enraged. On Friday, May 3rd of 2013, Donna writes Wendy a long email telling her that the most important part of the divorce is her relocation, and it is a non-negotiable. Donna paints Danny as a man suffering from a narcissistic personality disorder who is also a bully. Could this be Donna projecting? By the way, Donna is taking anti-anxiety meds. As she writes this email to Wendy, she is crying hysterically. She's so upset that she's finding it hard to get through her daily life. On June 3rd of 2013, Wendy and Danny are in a law office with their respective attorneys. The meeting lasts three hours. The discussion centers around Wendy's petition to relocate. On June 20th, the judge denies Wendy's petition to relocate. After Danny's 23-page rant, someone in the Adelson clan puts the first nail in his coffin. On July 31st, the divorce is finally resolved and granted. Now you'd think this would be the end of all the drama. Unfortunately, some in the Adelson family cannot accept defeat. They must win at any cost, even if it means taking someone out. Danny now has approximately one year to live, although he is unaware of this. In August of 2013, Wendy's salary at FSU is raised to $100,000. That should have been some consolation, but it's not. Wendy, Donna, Charlie, and probably Harvey, too, can't deal with the notion of Wendy being stuck in Tallahassee for 16 or so more years until her youngest son, Lincoln, turns 18. A few months later, on October 10th of 2013, Charlie Adelson and Katie McBanawa go on their first date. It's interesting that Charlie asked Katie out because she has two children. 
Charlie has told both his mother and his sister that he could never deal with someone else's kids and that single women with children are practically undateable. I would say that this points to Charlie never having seen Katie as a long-term wife material. A few weeks later on Halloween, October 31st, Charlie poses the following question to Katie. Do you know anyone who can harm someone? I'm assuming Katie answers yes. I do know someone who can harm another person because she ends up hooking Charlie up with on-again, off-again baby daddy, Siegfredo Garcia. Although apparently Katie never tells Charlie that this person is Siegfredo. Four months later, on February 14th of 2014, yes, Valentine's Day, Dan Markell files a motion to sanction Wendy for her alleged financial misconduct. In the filing, Dan accuses Wendy of filing false and misleading financial disclosures. He also accuses her of fraud and perjury. These are serious accusations for anyone, but for an attorney like Wendy, this is the stuff that can get you disbarred and fired from your teaching position. Attorneys are held to high standards when it comes to lying and committing crimes, ironically, since so many of us feel like lawyers sometimes lie. Dan says that Wendy failed to disclose more than $240,000 in assets on her financial affidavit. He's also arguing that she has refused to surrender his great aunt's two-carat Holocaust diamond, despite his 96-year-old great-uncle's written request for it. On March 26th of 2014, five months prior to his murder, Danny files another motion. In this one, he accuses Wendy of ignoring his rights to Skype with his kids and have telephone access to them when the boys are in her custody during the week. Danny also asks that Wendy be prohibited from allowing her mother Donna unsupervised visits with Ben and Lincoln because he's become aware that Donna has been calling him names like stupid and saying that she hates him in front of his sons. This is another huge nail in Danny's coffin. June 4th through 6th of 2014, Luis Rivera and Sigfredo Garcia take their first road trip to Tallahassee. Cellular phone records and GPS records place the duo in the vicinity of Danny Markell during that period. However, the men ultimately decide not to commit the crime and they return to Miami. Danny has quite literally dodged a bullet, although once again, he has no idea. In late June of 2014, Charlie and Katie are still dating. They go to Key West for a few days. On July 1st, Katie and Charlie are together at his waterfront home on Whale Harbor Lane in Fort Lauderdale from 10.04 a.m. until 1.20 p.m. For about five hours during the afternoon and evening, Katie bombards Sigfredo Garcia's cell phone with 48 different calls, none of which are answered. They finally speak for six minutes at 5.05 p.m. Nine minutes later, Sigfredo calls Harvey Adelson's cell phone. The call goes to voicemail. Katie then tries to reach Garcia again, 
with 30-plus calls. She also tries to get through to Harvey Adelson at 7.43 p.m., and that call goes to his voicemail as well. Katie finally reaches Garcia at 7.44 p.m. Then, at 12.43 a.m. on July 2nd, Charlie has a 12-minute call with his father, Harvey. What is so urgent that Charlie is calling his dad so late at night slash early in the morning. Wendy Adelson spends two weeks in South Florida with her parents. Her father, Harvey, celebrates his 70th birthday. On July 15th, Louis Rivera rents a Prius in North Miami. On July 16th, Louis and Sigfredo drive to Tallahassee. Just after midnight, on July 17th, they arrive. July 18th, just before 11 a.m., Dan Markell is attacked in his garage by Garcia. Rivera is the driver of the Prius, and he's waiting in the driveway to whisk himself and Garcia back to Miami. Dan Markell dies just after midnight. Within days, Wendy will move to South Florida with her sons, finally achieving her goal of getting away from Tallahassee. Note that Wendy actually profits financially from Dan Markell's death. She receives $2.7 million in life insurance benefits for her children. However, Dan's sister is the executor of 90% of that money. Wendy also receives $4,800 a month in Social Security survivors' benefits for her children. For the next two years, the Markells will be reeling in grief and disbelief. The Adelsons, on the other hand, will enjoy all this time with Wendy and her young sons in Miami. It is in 2016 that the tide begins to turn when Sigfredo Garcia, Luis Rivera, and Katie McBanawa are charged in connection with Dan Markell's death. At that point, some of the Adelsons begin to feel the heat. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.